<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Trump is out with a brand new lawsuit. Did you catch this? This is extraordinary. The BBC is reporting. Of course, it's been reported all over the place. Headline at the BBC and, and tip of the hat to Nigel for passing this along is uh, Trump sues Twitter, Google, and Facebook alleging censorship. Well, wait a minute. How do you sue a private company for inhibiting your First Amendment right of free speech when the First Amendment only regulates government? I mean, it's pretty straightforward stuff. The First Amendment says that government can't interfere with newspapers. Government can't interfere with your right to speak freely. Government can't interfere with your right to peaceably assemble and petition your government for redress of grievances. Government can't do those things. But, you know, outside of a couple of relatively narrow categories like race and gender, if you want to have a private club and say the only people who can come into this club are people who give us $200,000 a year, say in the case of Trump's Mar-a-Lago, you can do that. And I can show up at Mar-a-Lago and say, hey, I have a right to free speech. You need to let me in so I can talk to people. And they can say, no, you don't. We're a private organization. So how is Twitter different? How is Facebook different from Mar-a-Lago? What distinguishes LinkedIn, a private corporation, from Trump's Bedminster estate, where he held this so-called press conference announcing his lawsuit. Well, get ready. This is the single most bizarre constitutional attempt at a constitutional theory that I have seen in a long, long time. But of course, it's a stunt. It's just a stunt. There's nothing serious here. Let me, let me just read to you one paragraph from this lawsuit. What Trump is trying to say is that Twitter can't ban him from the Twitter platform because Twitter has become part of our government. And the government cannot inhibit your First Amendment right to free speech. Here's what they say. 
Defendant Facebook has increasingly engaged in impermissible censorship resulting from threatened legislative action, a misguided reliance upon Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act, and willful participation in joint activity with federal actors. Now, this would presumably mean, you know, the FBI goes to Facebook and says, give us the uh, data on this guy who attacked the, uh, with, a, with a warrant, you know, a legal warrant, give us the information from the Facebook page of this guy who attacked the Capitol, they turn it over. Based on that, on the fact that Facebook's cooperating with the FBI, Trump is alleging that they have now become the FBI. They have become part of the federal government. So the sentence continues. Defendant Facebook's status thus rises beyond that of a private company to that of a state actor. Now, there's probably, you know, Facebook, anybody who owns stock in Facebook is pretty startled that, hey, you own part of the U.S. government now? Really? And then the next sentence. As such, defendant Facebook is constrained by the First Amendment right to free speech in the censorship decisions it makes regarding its users. I am not making this up. This is right out of the Trump lawsuit. Facebook is part of the government because they are turning over information about the traitors who attacked our country and tried to destroy our democracy, our republic on January 6th, because they turned that information over to the FBI. Therefore, they are now part of the federal government, and they have to allow Donald Trump back on their platform. Seriously, not making this up. Trump devotees still drinking the Kool-Aid in obedience to his orangeness. You know, we use that phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, a lot. I think a lot of people don't realize exactly where it came from because the origin of the phrase was in 1978. In 1978, you know, an awful lot of people, a lot of you listening right now, are, you know, probably weren't born in 1978, or if you were, you weren't paying attention to what was going on. You might have been a little kid. But back then, uh, this 28-year-old congressional aide to Congressman Leo Ryan by the name of Jackie Spears flew down to British Guyana along with a couple of reporters and a pilot to find out what was going on in the so-called People's Temple, a church that had moved itself from San Francisco down to Guyana under the tutelage of the Reverend Jim Jones. They wanted to find out what was going on because there were reports that Jones had been beating and raping and stealing money from his parishioners. And when they showed up at the airport, Jim Jones ordered them murdered. And sure enough, you know, his, his goons came out, his church members came out. They shot dead three reporters. They shot dead Congressman Leo Ryan. And they put five bullets in Jackie Spear, 28-year-old aide to Congressman Ryan. Well, Jackie Spear survived and now represents, I believe, that same district that Ryan represented in Southern California. She had something to say recently about this. She said, Jim Jones was a religious cult leader. Donald Trump is a political cult leader. As a victim of violence and of a cult leader, I am sensitive to conduct that smacks of that. She had been left for dead with five bullets in her on the airport runway for 22 hours, Jackie Spear. Anyhow, she goes on to say, we have to be wary of anyone who can have such power over people that they lose their ability to think independently. 
you know, so generally when we say drinking the Kool-Aid, we're talking about, you know, people who have fantastical ideas. And certainly Trump has had a lot of those, saying that our U.S. intelligence agency was wrong when they said that Russia helped gain the White House in 2016, or, you know, his lies about his crowd size at his inaugural, or Obamacare, or trade policy, or hydroxychloroquine, or Sharpie altered storms, or the very fine people among the Nazis in Charlottesville. But if you really want to talk about Kool-Aid, you have to harken back to what happened in that in November of 1978, which was after Jim Jones murdered those people and thought that he had killed Jackie Spear. His guys went back to the People's Temple and he ordered everybody to literally drink from these giant vats of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. And 913 people did and died. And then he put a bullet in his head with a gun. So if you're going to literally take that phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, literally going to use it, or actually it's still a metaphor, I suppose, because, but in any case, if you're going to use that metaphor, really you should use it around things that kill people, because that's what the Kool-Aid did, not just weird ideas. And sure enough, as Dr. Deborah Burks and as the Brookings Institution both pointed out a few months ago, over 400,000 Americans died of COVID who did not need to die of COVID. If they had simply listened to Dr. Fauci and the science and worn masks and, and social distanced, 400,000 Americans would still be alive. But instead, they listened to Donald Trump as he was trying to keep the economy open so he could get himself reelected. And so, you know, I would say Jim Jones, it turns out, was just a piker. For every one person Jim Jones killed with his Kool-Aid, Donald Trump killed 438 people with his lies about hydroxychloroquine or drinking bleach or, hey, it's just the flu. I mean, he even, January, when he and Melania and Barron all got vaccinated against COVID in the White House, they never told anybody. They did it in secret. And their high-level followers... You know, Giuliani and Christie, they got treatment that wasn't available to the public. The monoclonal antibodies and the, and the steroids at that point in time was not generally available to people. Herman Cain got nothing. He died. And now you've got people like Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk last night talking about how requiring college students returning to college to get COVID vaccines is uh, somehow like, you know, the Holocaust or the Nazis or it's bizarre. You can read all about that over at MediaMatters.org. Maryland yesterday, the state of Maryland, reported that 100% of their COVID deaths now are among unvaccinated people. And, you know, these are the Trump humpers, right? By and large. Now it goes into phase two. Trump first denied the virus in order to get himself reelected. He wanted to get himself reelected to keep himself out of jail because he had a nice scam going. Right, Ivanka and Jared made over $100 million during the four years Trump was in, in office. And uh, Jared got a billion dollar loan from a foreign government that was, certainly wouldn't have given him a billion dollars under any other circumstances. Donald Trump made hundreds of millions of dollars and, and skimmed hundreds of millions of dollars off his campaign. So it was a real money-making enterprise, plus it kept them all out of jail. And now Trump's got a new scam. He's suing Facebook, Google, and Twitter saying that because they have complied with federal subpoenas in the past, 
they are now part of the federal government and therefore the First Amendment applies to them. They cannot inhibit people's right of free speech, which is just a totally specious argument. In fact, Avika Cohen is tweeting, the two guys, the lawyers who filed this on Trump's behalf, two of them have at AOL addresses, AOL.com. There's a, a law firm that put the thing together. They do personal injury work and insurance litigation. And the lead counsel is a specialist in insurance claims. Trump doesn't even want this lawsuit to go to court. Because if it does, it'll subject him to discovery, where he could be forced to testify under oath about his role in the January 6th insurrection. He knows this lawsuit's going to get thrown out of court. And I pointed that out yesterday, and about an hour after I got home, after doing the show yesterday afternoon, I get this email from Donald Trump. And I had said on the air, I guarantee you, or words to the effect of, I guarantee you this is not just you know, a scam to grab the news cycle and to, to ingratiate himself with the Republicans. It's a scam to raise money. And sure enough, I got this email. Dear Fred, did you watch my historic press conference? And I announced that I am suing Facebook, Twitter, and Google for unconstitutionally censoring me and other conservatives around the nation. My team is demanding an end to the shadow banning, a stop to the silencing, a stop to the blacklisting, vanishing, and canceling. We will not rest until we have achieved a major victory for the American people. This will be an uphill battle, Fred, and I cannot do it alone. I need you to stand with me and fight back. For a short time, you can increase your impact by 500%. Please contribute immediately to stand with me and to increase your impact by 500%. Your contribution of $250 becomes $1,500. Contribute $100, it becomes $600. Contribute $50, it becomes $300. Contribute $25, it becomes $150. Contribute any amount. In the end, I am confident we will achieve a victory for the American people, but only if I have your support, Fred. I'll look over the donor list soon and I'll be looking for your name. Don't let me down. Please contribute any amount right now to get on the donor list and your gift will be increased by 500%. Thank you, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, 45th President of the United States. I mean, you know, Jim Jones extracted all of the wealth of his followers. They had to give him everything and he made millions. Donald Trump is just doing the same thing. It's like one more scam to extract. And, and sure enough, the little make this a monthly recurring donation box is pre-checked. You can find the link over at HartmanReport.com in today's article. So now we've got the Delta variant burning through the states, through the red states and the red counties. Like nobody's business. And you've got states like Maryland reporting that 100% of their hospital deaths right now, COVID deaths, are attributable to people who never got vaccinated. Donald Trump, who said that his favorite book was P.T. Barnum's The Art of Making Money, P.T. Barnum, who famously said, or is famously said to have said, there's a sucker born every minute, is still running his scams. Not just Trump. Half the Republicans in Congress refuse to tell reporters whether they've been vaccinated or not. Half of them. Why? Because they don't want to tell their constituents. Why? Because they don't want their constituents to get vaccinated. Why? Because they are hoping, and all you have to do is, to see the success of their strategy, by the way, is look at today's stock market, which is down about 1% one, one to 2%. They are hoping that if Americans can experience another wave of COVID deaths, that will crash the economy, which will help them in the 2022 elections, because Biden will take the blame. And literally tens of millions, probably over 100 million Americans are following their advice and not getting vaccinated. And only God knows how many of these people are going to die 
but I guarantee you it's more than the 913 who Jim Jones killed. As I said, Jim Jones was a piker compared to Donald Trump, an absolute piker. I mean, this is like mass suicide from mass delusion on a scale, frankly, I don't think we've ever seen in America. I mean, Jim Jones was in Guyana. Yes, it was Americans. Have you ever seen anything like this? 400,000 people who voluntarily died to keep up with Donald Trump's fantasy to get himself reelected? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Jackie Spears was right, and we need to be paying attention to this. Jeff in Iowa City, what's on you? It says here you have a correction about Jim Jones. What did I get wrong? Yes, I think the congressman and the entourage actually visited the compound. Yes, they did. And that's when uh, people passed them notes saying, you know, help us. Right. They were gunned down on the airstrip leaving. That's correct. And uh, that's when uh, Jones kind of figured out that this is the end of the road. And that's when the Kool-Aid came about. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You filled it in well. I, I kind of jumped over that part in my narrative, and I probably should have added a sentence at least to to say that. But you're absolutely right. Um, I remember it well. You know, I mean, it was hugely oh, covered. Yeah. It was hugely it was covered. horrible. Yeah. And uh, so, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for uh, filling hey, it in. No problem. Appreciate it, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave. What's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I just wanted to mention uh, the arrest of this guy in Virginia, Fee Duong. And he, it appears like he had a, a terrorist cell that was disguised as a prayer group. Yes. And what I... Well, and what I kind of want to bring to uh, people's attention, if they, you know, if they haven't figured it out, is they are accusing this guy of actually faking um, to be Antifa on January 6th. That was his mission. Was and also he was laying. Uh, pos- he was in the process of creating pipe bombs and whatnot. Right. But I he mean, was going to provide really- Trump with the excuse to invoke the Insurrection Act and and shut down Congress and end the election. Well, I mean, and I think I've told you my bottom line is I think they unleashed the mob. They were going to murder. They were hoping Trump and them were hoping that Nancy Pelosi would be murdered and Mike Pence would be murdered. And then he could declare a state of emergency. Correct. And and then say, say, look, um, uh, this was not MAGA. This was Antifa. I mean, now now that's just some. Have you seen the 40 minute video that The New York Times put out, Dave? Uh, no. This thing is no, mind-blowing. It, it, it double, triple reinforces your assertion, and it's really worth checking out. Dave, thanks. Thanks for the call, and, and thanks for keeping it tight. Uh, we will be back with the former president of Haiti, uh, Lord Willen and the uh, Internet gods <laughs> go along with it. Uh, right after this break, stick around. It's going to get interesting. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I stand corrected. The former prime minister of Haiti. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. 
and it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, on the line with us is the former Prime Minister of Haiti and the author of The Hands of the Prime Minister, an illustrated conversation with Haiti's longest-serving head of government. Laurent Lemoth, am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. Hey, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. You are generally widely regarded as having been a very, very good prime minister for Haiti. And I'm curious your thoughts about what we know about the assassination of Haiti's most recent president, what we know and what this means, both for Haiti and for the region and the world. Well, first of all, the president was to know that he only had six months left on his five-year mandate. The president had just basically concluded an agreement, a deal with the opposition, to pave the way for elections. So there was no political reason for this to happen. However, the president was engaged in a very, very harsh reforms program, reforms in different sectors, which he then had, you know, some enemies that wanted to see him, you know, not be there anymore to, to see those reforms through. So it's a complicated situation, and they did the unthinkable, which is hire, you know, 28 foreign mercenaries to assassinate a sitting president. This is from the movies. Yeah. So you're of the opinion, number one, that these were foreign mercenaries. Number two, I'm curious, what kinds of reforms were these? I mean, um, you know, sometimes reforms work to the benefit of the people. Sometimes things that are called reforms just work to the benefit of, of a particular elite or friends of the president kind of thing. What, what, was that, what was actually happening? Okay, so those are foreign mercenaries because, you know, they arrested several of them. And there, you know, you have two Haitian-Americans. One of which, his name is James Solage, and he's, he lives in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. And he had moved to Haiti, you know, recently was involved in security. He was working for a security company in Haiti. And then the other is their foreign. 
Some are Venezuelans, some are Colombians. So this was a contracted hit. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the reforms, the reforms that the president was doing, he, he, was, he did a very extensive electricity reform. And that reform led him to have a lot of enemies in that sector. So basically what he did is he took out some private companies and then hired General Electric to provide electricity to Haiti. So basically that left a lot of unhappy individuals locally. And those were openly and actively against him. Hmm. Interesting. But, you know, this is why I call for an international investigation because, you know, I mean, this has to be done professionally. You know, I mean, pointing to, to people without it, the investigation would, would not serve any purpose. And it's important to have a very thorough, methodical, first autopsy, and then an international panel to come together, like was done for Prime Minister Rafik Hariri when he was assassinated in Lebanon, to have the same thing for the president of Haiti, which was a democratically elected president, which had basically been elected with 55% of the vote and only had six months to go through his mandate. So it's only fair to call for an international investigation to get to the bottom of this and bring those responsible to justice. Wasn't there supposed to be an election six months ago and he postponed that? No, no, the election, he set the election for September 26th of this year. I see, okay. I, you know, I'd, I'd read reporting to that effect. I'd, I'm... Yeah, there was a referendum for a new constitution that was postponed, but not the presidential and legislative uh, election. See. Those were set for September 20th. So, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of Americans, and, and I, I, sadly, I, I confess, I, I'm, I'm part of this group, are, you know, have not been keeping track of what's going on politically in Haiti. I mean, the last big Haiti story was the earthquake, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. What is the state of Haiti politically? How's the country doing politically, economically? How are the people doing? I understand that with COVID ravaging the world, that Haiti does not have a high level of vaccination, for example. What's going on down there? Yeah, so the COVID, fortunately, Haiti was not hard hit by the COVID. Recently, there's been an uptake in cases with a new variant. So, you know, we see about 150 to 200 cases per day, which is, you know, compared to the rest of the world, that's relatively small. So COVID-wise, we were fortunate to have been spared because Haiti has very weak health infrastructures. I mean, we have few hospitals because, you know, we're coming back from one of the world's most devastating earthquakes that destroyed basically everything in the capital. So we've had to rebuild, and it's, it's going to be a long and, and difficult process, and one that's going to take time. Yeah. And one that, that, that will take, you know, several more years. Now, politically... The biggest problem that, in my view, Haiti has is its constitution, because the constitution is setting us up to fail. And this is why the president also wanted to... Well, basically, for example, I mean, one of the most interesting constitutional points is that all Haitians living abroad are completely put aside, so they, they don't have any rights. So the minute that you leave Haiti or the minute that you don't have you live abroad from a diaspora standpoint, they are completely set aside. There is you can no, no longer vote, for example? They cannot vote. Mm. They cannot, for example, go to an election. Okay? They cannot, you know, owning land is a problem for them. Mm. So the Constitution completely, you know, bars them from, from any political nor civil rights in this case. 
also we've had a lot of political instability so we've had we've had uh, you know 25 governments in 30 years which is you know basically an average of one and a half you know one government for every one and a half years so we this is you know no you know you're going nowhere with something like that right right and then on the political point the president is elected by the people the mayor is elected you know, we, we, he's, he's unable to carry out any of his priorities, any any of his campaign promises, because he doesn't control the government, right? So he has to come. It has he has to nominate a prime minister, deal with Congress, etc. And that prime minister sometimes has to come from the opposition. A lot of, like for example, this president, most of his prime ministers came from the opposition party. So those have their own agendas and not necessarily the president's priorities in mind. So this creates also development issues for the country. Right. Speaking of development issues, I, I, I was in Haiti back in the 1980s uh, on behalf of an international relief agency based out of Germany. I've been there several times. And my sense of it was that there's not a, a, a substantial natural resource base. Many of the forests are gone. There's not, you know, like giant oil reserves or iron mines or anything like that that the country has always struggled as a consequence in part of that lack of natural resources. And mm-hmm. that an awful lot of what, what I was seeing, and I, I met with the, I forget his actual title, but sort of the minister of, I think rehabilitation was the word back then, this was in the 80s, but it was basically the guy in charge of uh, infrastructure within the country. And, and it seemed like the major thing that was keeping the country afloat at that point in time was foreign aid. First of all, was my assessment back in the 1980s accurate of of what I was seeing? And secondly, is that still very much the case? What can people do to help Haiti achieve some semblance of self-government and governance and and stability? Well, the first thing is Haitians to help themselves with a good uh, constitution, one Mm -hmm. that basically, you know, protects the rights of its citizens, that protects foreign uh, direct investment and can engage uh, the Haitian jobs. diaspora. It's huge here in the United States. And welcoming the Haitian diaspora because they're thriving in the U.S. They, they count for over 40 percent of our GDP. Wow! Um, by sending 4.6 billion dollars a year in remittance, yet the Constitution today bars them from anything. So I mean, there is no incentive for them right. to come and do anything really in terms of investment in the country because owning land is a problem also for them. So mm-hmm. that paints you, you know, the picture of what they're living. So, you know, it's, it's something that has to be uh, looked at. So now once we have a new constitution, then it's looking at Haiti as an investment destination with, with our beautiful beaches and our natural landscape that we have to offer the rest of the world, just like the Dominican Republic does and earns over $4 billion a year in tourism revenue. And it's the same island, same land, and Haiti has more beautiful beaches, except that the governance between the two countries is completely different. So we need to help ourselves, and then we ask others to help. Yeah. That's my approach to, to, to this development. I think it's brilliant. Laurent Lamoth, the uh, former prime minister of Haiti, the author of The Hands of the Prime Minister, an illustrated conversation with Haiti's largest, uh, longest serving head of government. L-A-U-R-E-N-T-L-A-M-O-T-H-E dot com is the website, and uh, L-A-U-R-E-N-T-L-A-M-O-T-H is the Twitter handle. Uh, Prime Minister Lamont, thank you so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
My pleasure. Bye-bye. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. I wanted to talk about essentially the death of, of Christianity at the hands of the Republican Party right now. This is pretty remarkable. NPR did this story this morning following up on some some very good uh, reporting and research that's been done. Becky Sullivan writing over on the NPR website. Two dramatic trends that for years have defined the shifting landscape of religion in America. A shrinking white Christian minority alongside the rise of religiously unaffiliated Americans. And these numbers have largely stabilized. At one point, uh, back in 1990, back in 1976, 80% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. That has now plateaued at 44%. The number dropped below 50% for the first time in 2012. Uh, They've largely been replaced by Americans who don't list any religious affiliation. That group has tripled since the 1990s. Uh, Robert Jones, who is the author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, uh, you know, points out that he's, he's talking about the, the religious right that came along with the Republicans in 1980. You'll recall, when uh, Ronald Reagan was president, he brought into the White House the son of his vice president. His vice president, of course, was George Herbert Walker Bush. He brought George W. Bush into the White House to act as a liaison between himself and the fundamentalist Christian community, the evangelical Christian community. And this is when the Republican Party really made an aggressive effort to essentially convert Christianity into a a political arm. And then you had Christians, you had Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and all these guys on the right, Jimmy Swaggart, et cetera, who are more than willing to say, yeah, let's go along with this. This sounds like a plan and do the exact same thing and you know convert their version of Christianity into a political philosophy. And now you've got this ex-Trump official, the guy who used to head the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, his name is Russ Vaught. And uh, he has put together an organization, it's called the Center for Renewing America, that is pushing bans to outlaw the teaching of uh, racism in our schools. And he's calling it Christianity. He says racism is a personal prejudice. In other words, there's nothing structural about it. And they published a toolkit for taking over school boards. What he's trying to do is create, quote, renew an American consensus of one nation under God. He says uh, critical race theory is aimed at destroying Christianity, free markets, and traditional marriage while portraying straight white people as oppressors. And he's trying to take this into the churches. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Which raises an interesting question. Are you noticing a collapse of Christianity, of at least religiosity, let's call it, around you? Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Brenda in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Hey, Brenda, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. First of all, I'm very thankful for you and your show. My point is, we're talking about Christ. Christ gave us two, two great commandments. 
And the second one, if someone is breaking it, like the example in Georgia, they've changed all the voting laws and they want to say, oh, no, it's not racist. It is racist. And it has the effects of hurting some people, those people. Mm -hmm. Those people are, are one another. And when people talk about Christ and they say, oh, I'm a Christian, well, if you're doing something to someone else you wouldn't want done to yourself, no, that's not from Christ. And when people start going on and on and on about these laws, everything else, you just simply say, as I say, I'm trying to be a Christian. But I know that that person doesn't want it done to them, and I wouldn't want it done to myself. And all this dark money, all those things, I hear Christian right. I don't want right put on it anymore. There's nothing right about what they're doing. It's dark. It's evil. It hurts people. It hurts animals. It hurts the whole society. And they just can't get it through their little head that that other person is one another. That's Brent, my thing. Brenda, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. That was a sermon. I, you know, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. Was, I can't add a word to it. That was Those perfect. were Christ's words. I, I agree. Thank you, Brenda. Okay. Thank you. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I was listening to you talking about the cult Kool-Aid mm -hmm. and propaganda. Yeah, the cult Kool-Aid and propaganda. And what it came to my mind was it essentially comes down to the, the domestic terrorism here in this country. It occurs to me is really no different than terrorism in the Middle East. It's exactly the same. And I'll tell you why. I have a friend who's from Afghanistan. She's uh, been an American citizen for a long time. But her father was uh, worked for the Afghan government back in the 70s. Uh, he was the minister of something, and he worked in the presidential palace, and he was actually killed during the um, Russian invasion in 1978 when they bombed the palace. Mm -hmm. And so I started asking her, I said, well, what, what, is, what is with Afghanistan? What, what, what do the Afghan people want? And she said, we want everybody to get out of here. That's what we want. And I said, what, well, what, like what? She said, well, essentially, we were driving the car. She said, um, for all, all the imperial powers come here because they want something. They, the Russians want a pipeline. And then we also have the punks, you know, the criminal punks like al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban. And I said, well, I thought the Taliban were, were the Afghan fighters. She said, no, the Taliban came from, from Egypt and Saudi Arabia, just like uh, al-Qaeda did. Mm. And I said, well, what is terrorism? And she said, look, this is what you have to understand. There are two kinds of people in the Middle East, the very rich and the very poor. She said, uh, you know, who took the middle out of the Middle East? There's no middle class. And so what happened, you notice she said the, the Middle East countries do not have standing armies for the most part, not, not much, because the rich don't want to pay for them, because the way they do their bidding against each other is with terrorism. And they pay the peasantry, they pay them and tell them that you're doing great things for God, and your family will get lots of money, which they never do. If you go blow this, they're essentially, you know, uh, they're, they're essentially fighting each other because they're bad people and they, they often disagree. And that's their politics. Yeah, it's a divide and, and conquer strategy. Yeah. And what's happened is to the, the, she said the West, she said, she said the people in the West and the United States think that terrorism is the, the Muslim monsters coming for you. And she said, no, the West has only begotten in the way to the degree that we've meddled in the Middle East, and, and now we have become targets. But what I'm seeing, Tom, is that 
as the middle class disappears in America, and there's no middle, and there are different sectors of the middle class that are disappearing faster than others, like the unskilled workers with uh, the good union jobs and so on. Um, now we have oath keepers, proud boys, and rich people who are getting them to do the thing. Same damn thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. That's brilliant. It's exactly the same thing. It's a brilliant analysis, Paul. You're, you're absolutely right. I, 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 like with Brenda, I can't add anything to it. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Harrison in Seattle. Hey, Harrison, what's up? Man, tough to follow those two calls. Yeah. Paul in uh, Woodenville always brings it. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, up here in Washington State, we had above-average snowpack going into that heat wave. Mm -hmm. We now have below-average snowpack. That is a huge amount of water that has run off just in about five to seven days. They're saying roads have been washed out in the backcountry, bridges. It's the equivalent of almost getting a winter storm. Yeah, yeah same here. The, the Columbia done. River is, it, it looks to me like it's probably five or ten feet higher than normal. It's substantial, whatever it is. And, you know, it yeah. varies with the tide, and I'm never sure what the tides are when I'm, when I'm taking a walk along the river and, and looking at it. But all the trees along the border they, are these large bushes that, that are, uh, you know, can deal with the water. You know, it's up over their stems. It's up to their leaves, you know, the river. And I've lived here for a long time, you know, probably close to, to well, over 15 years anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a period when I was in D.C. during that. But nonetheless, I've been looking at Mount Hood for better than 15 years every year. And I've never seen it so barren of snow as it is right now. You know, it's all pouring into the Columbia. Yeah, the, the farmers were expecting a bumper water year, no problems there. Well, that's changed. Yeah. Fire season, they were thinking it was mitigated. Maybe not. It's yeah. a game changer, man. Uh, and and uh, I hate to see it. I've lived here my whole life. But everyone I've talked to in the same, same situation said, yeah, man, never seen anything like it. So once in a lifetime, probably not. Yeah, I'm with you. Harrison, thank you. Yeah, this is just a precursor of what's to come. What, what we saw, you know, a week or so ago was just the smallest lifting of the veil of the future that is waiting for humankind if we don't immediately do something dramatic about the burning of fossil fuels in this planet. Teresa in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Well, I just wanted to um, kind of put a little postscript on your uh, talk about uh, the Christianity thing and churches and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a term that I heard a while back called churchianity. Hmm. Churchianity. And um, I think that's what um, a lot of people have done. You know, they go to church. Churchianity, they do that. I don't know. Just, it just connotates um, an awful thing for me. But also, I saw a bumper sticker the other day here in Nashville that said, Lord, protect me from some of your followers. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's what it's come to, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, really. And uh, But I just wanted to bring those two things in because nobody uh, commented on that term today. Yeah. And uh, Churchianity, so, I love it. Churchianity, yeah, churchianity. And, I, you know, that can be a plethora of things. But sure. Anyway, that and the... And the uh, little bumper sticker I just want to share today. Yeah. Well, thank you, Teresa. Those are great. Uh, you know, and, and uh, the churchianity in particular, I like. I'll have to use that in the future. Thank you. Uh, Orlando in Stockton, California. Hey, Orlando, what's up? 
Hey, what's going on, Tom? I just want to comment on the issues of, you know, what you're talking about, the religiosity mm-hmm. uh, in the world out here. And one of the things, in the black church, I've noticed because a lot of the youth in the church are very disappointed that the black church that is supposed to have been so strong and so civil rights oriented has also been tangent to, we've seen tangent to the GOP and a lot of their policies they sided with in order to maintain a certain level of, in my opinion, seeing popularity in the black community, uh, as well as they got a lot of monies from the Republican church. As you know, many mm. of these corporations helped, many of these church corporations that came out of, uh, you know, out of the late 80s and 90s, when all of the tax monies and abatements were given to churches to allow them, they created businesses. At that time, in the 07, 08, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I mean, Tom, every four, four blocks, you had about at least six churches in four block radius near each other. And the amount of money that they were bringing in, but when Obama came into office, many of them was like, the GOP is no longer calling, and we're not getting the monies that we got, you know, 10 years before when the GOP was running. And there's a lot of disgust in the black community towards the black church because of these things, because these issues supported anti-gay, they supported anti-woman, and they supported patriarchy. And a lot of the young people are falling out of the church because they have seen these things. They have seen their friends be damaged by a lot of these policies and mm-hmm. families. And what I've seen is a lot of people becoming deists or just really straight atheists. And that's what I've seen. You know, many people, and they see, as your caller before was talking about terms, there's a term from the Southeast called churchified. And mm-hmm. churchified, kind of similar to chicken fried, is that you have people who are so uh, heaven bound that there are no earthly good to yeah. the community. That's amazing, Orlando. There is a uh, uh, progressive denomination, I, I believe it's called the United Church of Christ. I remember when the wars against gay people were you know, a big thing, maybe a decade or so ago before gay marriage. And uh, they ran ads basically saying gay people are welcome in our church. But, and I've attended those churches a couple of times over the year. It's been well over a decade, but I've, I've been in those churches. But they're largely white churches. Is there a, an emerging progressive um, uh, black denomination or not? I know very little, frankly, about the black church. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's fine. I think what I've seen as a black man in this country, what I've seen is that there really isn't a, a straight up to me progressive movement amongst the church. It, it seems to be sporadic. But what I've seen is you've seen places like the AME church right. have had a certain level of, of progressiveness and liberalness where they accepted women as ministers as well as bishops within their religious systems a lot sooner than many other, especially, you know, when I think of like how toxic the Baptists and Methodists have been on these issues, whereas the AME Church has been a lot less. But I don't know, many of them would just simply say, call themselves a non-denominational church, or a lot of them will say such and such fellowship, and they don't right. really show or mention any affiliation to more traditional religious right. organizations. What I Seems think. like there's, a, there's a, a market niche, you know, to put it in the language of, of marketing uh, there, for uh, anybody who wants to jump into it, you know, that could be a good thing. I mean, you know, that they could fill that market hole, as it were. Maybe not. I don't know. It's... I, honestly, I think what's happening is that people are realizing, I think one of your uh, call, earlier callers is simply saying that what she felt was that people are getting more into spirituality and less, and less away from the codified, organized religion which yeah. helps them be more connected to people. And I think that's what people are looking for. And you alluded to that, being connected to people. Yeah.
Yeah, I think you're right. Orlando, thank you. Thank you for the insights and, uh, and, and, and the information. I appreciate it. We'll be back. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Ronnie in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. The last article that you did about uh, that NPR did about mm-hmm. how there are fewer Christians that are affiliated with, you know, their churches or how. Uh, well, I and for that matter, exactly. fewer people who are calling themselves Christians. They may say I'm spiritual or I'm religious, but, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, I actually heard that same story from the pulpit of my church not too long ago. Really? Yes. And of course, they're, they point to all the stuff going on in the world and they're like, well, we can see it. Look at all these ungodly people. Look at all these sinful oh, people, geez. you know, premarital sex and abortion and gay rights and all this. And so, of course, they look at this study by NPR as their reason to even more so spread the gospel to double down and i right and i look at it as more like people are still spiritual they still have their faith but they don't want to affiliate with the church that they grew up in because you know there's there are so many false prophets whether it's big churches or little churches you know you can still be spiritual and not go to church and um i did bring that up one of my pastors, and I think they want to kick me out now. So, yeah. well, there you go. I think that the the you know if somebody killed Christianity in America, and by the way, this the, you know I I, I I think to some extent having just watched the Tudors, you know, on Showtime, this whole series about Henry the Eighth and his break with the Catholic Church and how corrupt the Catholic Church was, and then we started watching the Borgias last night. Oh my God, you know. You know, in most of Europe, churches are largely just ceremonial. People people go to church for weddings and for funerals. They you know they fill and, yeah. and rites of passage. You know, uh, confirmations yep. and, and 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 things like that. Um, so they fill an important social role. 
and, and you know ritualistically but they're but they're not you know as interwoven with the the daily life of of uh, Europeans as as here in the United States and I and I think it's because religion for a thousand years in Europe was so politicized I mean you know the church ran Italy in a good chunk of the rest yep. of Europe um, you know right up until the, the, the really the, the the Protestant Reformation really started picking up steam in the 16th century and and it's uh, and now we're seeing the same thing here in the United States This started in the 1980s with the Reagan administration overtly trying to politicize Christianity and then a bunch of Christian preachers the Jim Bakers and the Jerry Falwells and you know all these guys of the world you know the the TV preachers the the Jimmy Swaggers they all politicized their own religion they you know hey you're not a real Christian if you're not a Republican that kind of thing and and I think that a lot of Americans just looked at that and said you know I don't recall Jesus talking about the GOP yeah just don't exactly remember. yeah it's unfortunate you know because it's I, I, so much of what the Republicans have done is just unfortunate, and yeah, to ruin uh, to ruin religion. I mean, it, it's an important thing for a lot of people, and it's it's just not it's not what it used to be, and it's not yeah. what it should be a yeah. spiritual thing. It, they have made it a, a political thing, and yeah. that's just not right. I agree. I agree. Ronnie, thank yeah. you for the call. Luigi in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Luigi, what's on your mind Hi. today? Hi, Tom. I have, um, real quick, like, I get excited. I'm an old man. I, I um, answered uh, on an email to a pastor here in Pensacola on an opinion piece that he had written uh, in Sunday's Pensacola News Journal and equating religion and everything. It's like they're normally doing with the Constitution. Well, I emailed the gentleman, and I, I, I uh, referenced several uh, quotes from The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders by Greg Frazier, which is an excellent book. I loved it, and it, I talked, I quoted about the, their belief in theistic, um, uh, my goodness, I'm going, theistic, I can't think, I'm too old. Yeah, many of them were deists, which are people who believe that something created the universe and put it into being, but then just kind of let it go according to natural law, and here we are. Uh-huh. And, you know, petitioning God with prayer as, as Jim Morrison, you know, started that song, just doesn't make much difference. That was, you know, Jefferson, Ben Franklin, there were a number of them who were like big time deists, and then you had the Unitarians and whatnot. And that's why they stripped religion out of the Constitution. And that's why they, they forced Massachusetts to renounce religion before it could join the Union. And according to this book, they, he debunks the myth of a bunch of them being deists. Patrick Henry was a deist, and he said that the theistic rationalism, that's the word yes. I'm looking for. Yeah, or, and, or and humanitarianism, or, or humanism humanitarianism. had, had, had exactly. been called that earlier in the 16th century. That, you know, Henry VIII called himself, I'm a, human, I'm a humanist. And, and yeah, yeah, I, I totally yes, get it. And, uh, you know, people just don't learn from history. I'm with you. Uh, thank you for the call. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, what's up? Hey, I was very interested to hear you start the day with stories of um, drinking the Kool-Aid and Jim Jones. And there is something in our history that's a toxic mix of authoritarianism and religion and a leader uh, just bent on uh, having people follow them without um, consider, you know, to the letter. 
Well, this is the point um, Jackie Spear made, is that, you know, she she took five bullets from Jim Jones's people, and she said, uh, I've seen a religious cult leader, and now I'm seeing a political cult re leader in Donald Trump. And, you know, uh, she didn't say it in these words, but, I you know, I, I would draw from that that there's not much difference between the two. Correct. I think that's correct. And I, I also want to mention that bringing up history and, and dealing with the, the facts of it is very important. And I want to go back uh, like 150 years and say that the LDS folks are the now, yes, they like to be called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now. Mm -hmm. And they are, they can be such sweet people, wonderful neighbors, really kind. And I think a lot of them don't know what I'm about to say. And that is that Mormonism started out as an authoritarian cult. People were called upon to turn themselves in or turn in a neighbor. It, there was a thing called blood atonement where people could be killed. Uh, there were paramilitary-type organizations out of the head of the church that did that, according to the prophet. They mm. called their leader the prophet. Joseph Smith, yeah. Mm -hmm. And my family arrived from England, having been promised that if they sold everything and came over, and they were true, they believed, they believed that they would have a wagon, um, an ox team, and provisions to make the, the rest of the trip. There wasn't a railroad yet through the country mm -hmm. from Iowa City, Iowa to Salt Lake City. And when they got there, my great-great-great-grandfather found a pile of green lumber that had been coarsely fashioned into the parts of a handcart. And he had a family with five children. Wow. So the Mormon I, Church was recruiting back then, but they were doing it with a little less than straightforward honesty. That's correct. And they were, actually, they had been led to to believe that they should get on that boat and come over and the tickets were procured for them at a time in the year when the head of the mormon church knew the prophet brigham young knew that it was too late mm -hmm. that they were never going to get over the pass in wyoming where winter falls in normal climate times winter comes at the end of october mm -hmm. so they, they were starting out m months late hmm. So they didn't, even at the clip that they were going, they did not get to that spot until the winter came. My great-great-great-grandmother found herself frozen to the ground. Not, she wasn't dead. None of my relatives died, but one-third of the party did die. Wow. Wow. Shades, thousand, shades of the Donner Party. Wow. A thousand people. A thousand people. So out of 1,300 died, and it's quite a harrowing story. De Devil's Gate by David Roberts is a very good book on the subject. Fascinating. MJ, thank you. Yeah, so, so many essentially crimes have been committed in the name of God or the gods. It's just it's impossible to catalog them. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And yet I'm still convinced that we all have a deep need, a deep-seated sense of something spiritual. And these people are just exploiting that.
And welcome back. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, how are you? What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. As soon as you said Haiti, it reminded me of us all texting $10 to the Red Cross to help them after the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And then us screaming because they had only spent $50 million of it on food and water. And then they sent $30 million in another shipment of food and water. And then they said they were going to hold on to the $400 million until, until such a time as there was a government to help with infrastructure. Uh-oh. They still don't have that money. You mean the Red Cross is still sit, sitting on money that Americans donated for Haiti? You, what, this was ten years more, ago. Yeah, I, I was going to say a, a decade ago or thereabouts. It went into uh, salaries and bonuses, is what I read. I don't know if what I read was true. Sometimes mm. you have to doubt what you read. But as sure. so far as I know, that four hundred million never made it down there. And after all that confusion of the hur the earthquake and the hurricane, that you know. Children were being um, adopted and given away, and never their families couldn't find them, couldn't get them back. And uh, did Haiti ever resolve their problems with the world court and the fact that they have to keep paying France for their country? I don't know the answer to that question. It would have been a good one to ask the prime minister. I'm I'm sorry. I'd... Yeah, I know. <laughs> so but, you know, Haiti so has time. been trying to buy their country back from France, and they tried to go to the world court. I don't know if they ever made it and if they ever got their country back. Yeah, that's been going on for almost a century, hasn't it? I mean, doesn't that go way back? Yes, yes, way back. Yeah, and you would have been there after Ferdinand. My kid sister was in, in uh, Domin on the Dominican Republic when uh, the hurricane hit working for the Peace Corps. Oh, wow. And they, they were building a bakery, and it got wiped out. Yeah, I've I've only been to the Dominican Republic for like a stop on a cruise ship for four hours or something like that. But but back in the 80s, I spent uh, you know better part of a week or two in Haiti uh, in yeah, Port-au-Prince. And my understanding is they do own a small oil reserve off their southwest coast, mm -hmm. but there has always been a fight over who would develop it and who would profit from it, right. and never the people of Haiti. All right. I was fascinated by his comment about the uh, the electricity uh, being taken away from local companies and given to General Electric. Um, it yes. may be a way of challenging local corruption, or it may be a way of challenging the local power structure, uh, or you know, it it may be corrupt itself. I mean, you know, who knows if they're being spiffed with money from GE? If that's you know, if that, if that's all ac accurate. It's well, after that, that last hurricane, a lot of the shacks and made-up houses of tin and cardboard that the people lived in were washed out to sea. Yes. And then the people of power were taking that land so that they could build hotels on it. Because, like you said, there are no resources. But after that earthquake, people were eating the dirt because it had calcium in it and eating what was called scurvy grass. That's all they had. I don't know if you remember earthships going in there and helping them build these concrete huts with cisterns so they could have clean water, and then their so-called government stopped it. No, I didn't know because, about that. When, when yeah, was that? It was up, that was right after the earthquake, about uh, oh. six months later. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I but, was... Uh, no, I, the corruption is the reason that the Red Cross said they were not going to give them the money, that they were going to hold on to it until there was a solid government. Yeah. But that's not happening. Yeah, remarkable. Norma, thank you, and thanks for being on top of this. I, I've been kind of out of touch with Haiti since the 80s, uh, you know, other than just watching the news, as, as I think is the case probably for most Americans. And you are so perceptive. I appreciate your insights and, and thoughts. Thank you.
been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 